If you think the world has changed dramatically in the last five years, you haven't seen anything yet. Um, <clears throat> things are happening at such a rapid pace um, that we are simply constantly challenging uh, accepted ideas, just like the Red Queen in Alice in Wonderland, who can only remember the future instead of the past. And she likes to remember and think of six impossible things before breakfast. And I just love her. But um, uh, uh, one thing I've read recently, and uh, this is about future brain, uh, if a rat's brain can be trained to detect landmines in Mozambique, then what are the untold possibilities for the human brain? So now we're going to have a few examples of future brain from the speakers that we have here today. And Sharon Handler, the president of our board, is going to introduce our next speaker. Thank you. Just to correct it so everyone knows my proper name, it's Sharon Handler Loeb. My husband is out in the audience. First of all, I just want to make a comment about this um, conference. I know that some of you are here for the first time and others of you have been supporters and seekers of knowledge about the brain and have been here before. Um, I will not take the time now, but I have to tell you, I know so many stories about how people who have come to this conference and listened to the four categories of the brain have had that moment where one piece of information from what they've learned here has either helped to change their lives because they had an illness that no one could explain or diagnose and someone here was able to contact someone on their behalf Another person realizes that they had a concussion and never treated it and were in trouble because it was three years later and they were suffering from headaches to even my husband. The information about um, sleep apnea that Dr. Chesler has talked about. I was one of those wives who came in and at one point realized my husband wasn't breathing and then he started breathing again, and I thought, oh, how wonderful, he's sleeping quietly. And then I remembered what I was told, and so I am one of those people that can say I'm responsible for making my husband's life a longer, healthier one. So, <clears throat> anyway, forgive me if I'm going to be speaking quickly, but we are kept on a tight schedule as far as how, how long our introductions can be. This is going to be difficult with our next speaker, Dr. Joshua Hare, as he is one of the world's pioneers in stem cell therapy. This therapy is, the emerging, is emerging as the most promising new treatment option for chronic diseases and injuries affecting human organs. It is regenerative medicine. It is the future of medicine, and it has arrived. Both my husband and I have been at the facility that Joshua Herr has uh, created. It is impressive, his work is impressive, and he's not only impressive as a doctor, but as a man of great intelligence and compassion, which I think is extremely important as we move forward in the world of medicine in general. 
I do not use the word impressive lightly. Dr. Hare is the founding director of the Interdisciplinary Stem Cell Institute at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, as well as the co-founder of Longevron, a life sciences company developing biological solutions for aging, something that is a very interesting, expanding science. Dr. Hare comes out of Johns Hopkins with two fellowships, Harvard and Brigham Young, Brigham and Women's Hospital. He's led the heart failure program at Johns Hopkins, and when he finally arrived at the University of Miami, in 2007, he founded the Stem Cell Initiative, which has currently expanded its research into 15 areas of disease, including Alzheimer's and stroke. I know it's time for me to stop, but I must mention one more amazing accomplishment. Dr. Hare currently holds more than 16 FDA-approved investigative new drugs for cell-based therapies. Talk about our future. Please help me join in welcoming the very impressive friend of mine, Dr. Joshua Hare. Thank you, Sharon, for that uh, very, very kind introduction. Um, I was looking around wondering who actually you were talking about. Um, it, uh, it really is a, is a great um, a privilege to be here, um, particularly uh, for many reasons. It's a, it's a wonderful meeting. But um, I'm a cardiologist, so what's a cardiologist doing at a, at a brain meeting? So <clears throat> let me tell you why. Um, through our work at the uh, Stem Cell Institute, we've become very interested in how the body heals itself, and we think that's one of the, the key clues and one of the things that we've missed in, in medicine and biology for, for the last couple of centuries. So I'm going to talk about how stem cells can spark the regenerative powers of the human brain. Uh, all of the work that I'm going to talk to you about is, has been done at the University of Miami at the Interdisciplinary Stem Cell Institute and at the company Longevron that licensed uh, technologies from the uh, University of Miami. All of our work has been uh, published in the scientific literature, and if anybody has any, uh, any wants more details about anything I've said, please, I urge you to, to email me, and I can send you original uh, scientific publications. So these are the four areas I'd like to cover. Can the human brain regenerate itself? How can this regeneration be harnessed? to treat incurable diseases such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, or even uh, mood disorders like depression. What, are the, what is the role of stem cells in this, and what does this mean for human health and aging? So I'm going to start out with uh, regeneration. What is regeneration? And this is actually the, uh, the thing that got me interested in this, in this field. Much of what I've done as an adult, I realize, was sparked by uh, events that occurred to me as a child, and I was always fascinated about this. There are animals who live on this earth that if you remove a limb or if they lose a limb, it'll, it'll grow back completely normally. This is the Mexican salamander regrowing its, uh, its leg. The Middle Eastern newt is another example of an animal that can, um, can completely regrow a limb. Now, our perception of ourselves is that we can't regenerate. And in fact, when I was in medical school in the, in the 80s, we were taught that uh, humans have no regenerative capability. That's why a human being cannot regrow a limb. 
uh, or for that matter, a heart or a brain or any organ that's injured. There were exceptions to that. We know we can regrow skin if it's injured. We know that the liver can regrow. And that goes back to a story actually in Greek, Greek mythology. The Greeks appreciated that the liver could regrow. But with the heart and the brain or limbs, not in humans. Why am I showing you a picture of a, a nuclear explosion? Um, this actually, the fact that nuclear uh, uh, bombs were exploded in the atmosphere gave scientists a very valuable tool that allowed us to completely change our thinking about the heart and the, uh, and the brain. So when nuclear bombs are exploded, they release uh, a variation of carbon into the atmosphere, carbon-14, and that can be used by scientists to date the cells in our body when a human being dies. And it was uh, these, types of, um, these, these types of experiments that showed, and this is a classic uh, paper from Spalding et al. published just, uh, just five years ago. We talked about five years being uh, changing the world. That showed that the hippocampus, which is linked to the amygdala, which we heard about before, had when people died, typically about 33% of the cells in the hippocampus were new. They had been developed in those people's brains after they had been born. And so this really shook things up. This means that uh, uh, key organs like the brain, and this is also true for the heart, do grow new cells um, after, we're, after we're born, and they do so in adulthood. And it's estimated from this study that we grow 700 new cells in the hippocampus every single day. And I think this is very importantly linked to sleep. I believe that the new neurons uh, are growing more preferentially when we, uh, when we are sleeping than when we're awake. And so perhaps this is yet another reason why a sleep deprivation is so important. It might, it might delay this. Um, here are a couple, a couple of the key papers. Uh, the, the first paper that reporting, uh, reported new cells in the hippocampus was actually published in 1998, but the critical one that actually measured the number of uh, neurons was published in 2013. So what does this mean for disease? Well, it means that we have to rethink all of the diseases, uh, the chronic diseases of adulthood. They're not just diseases of degeneration or loss of cells. There's actually a balance between new cells growing and new cells being lost. And perhaps if we can reshift that balance, uh, we, can, um, we can heal diseases like Alzheimer's disease. Uh, this is um, uh, this, uh, the picture in the corners of my colleague, uh, Barry Baumel who runs the Alzheimer's Center at the University of Miami. And uh, he and I worked together to develop a stem cell trial for Alzheimer's disease, which we'll hear a lot about this uh, afternoon. I won't go through it in, in detail. But we tend to think that Alzheimer's is due to the deposition of abnormal proteins in the, in the brain, which therefore causes the brain to lose these cells that are so critical to cognition. And currently, there's no available cure. There have been decades of work hundreds of millions of dollars spent with very little success, although there was a success just mentioned last week by the company Biogen. But over, by and large, 20 years of huge amount of research, uh, no success. Now, uh, this is a picture. Uh, this is a cartoon picture of what the brain looks like in a patient with Alzheimer's. And you can see it's completely shrunken. And very importantly, the hippocampus, which is this area that's enriched for growing new neurons, is also uh, shrunken. And we think it's because of the deposition of these amyloid proteins and these tau proteins that damage the neurons and cause it uh, to shrink away. 
Um, there's something we've missed in Alzheimer's disease that's also very important in mood disorders, and that is the role of inflammation in the brain. This, is the, this uh, picture is, um, is, my, is my colleague, uh, Charles Nemiroff, who's the head of psychiatry at the University of Miami, and he and I have had many discussions how stress leads to inflammation in the brain and how this can contribute to mood disorders. And this, this has a, uh, uh, been a guiding principle in our work with stem cells, which, which I'll come to next. So the general idea is that perhaps what we've missed with Alzheimer's disease is addressing the neuroinflammation, which could also be important in mood disorders. And what we've come to learn in our studies is that inflammation prevents the growth of new cells in the body under, under conditions of injury. So inflammation leads to reduced tissue regeneration, which contributes, our hypothesis is that it contributes to degenerative brain diseases, mood disorders, aging, and other degenerative diseases. So can we do anything about this? And this is, this is absolutely critical and is a driving influence in, in the work that we've done with stem cells. So what are stem cells and how can they help the body heal itself? This uh, beautiful picture of stem cells was taken by a postdoctoral fellow in my laboratory, Christina Sinina who's now doing her medicine residency in New York. And this shows the stem cells in green and heart muscle cells showing how these stem cells, if you culture them together, will bind together and the stem cells will transmit factors into the, uh, the, um, the muscle cells and cause their health to be imp improved. And through this research, we've understood that there are four things that stem cells can do, at least four, there are others. They can reduce inflammation, very critical to what I said before about brain diseases, they can re reduce scar tissue, they can stimulate new blood vessel growth, and very, very importantly, our research shows, the research of our lab and many others, is that they stimulate new tissue to form from precursor cells and from cell division. So we think that we can use mesenchymal stem cells to stimulate that body regeneration that we have innately. I showed you the, uh, the, the data that shows that there are 700 new cells formed in the hippocampus per day, and we can use mesenchymal stem cells to increase that number. Um, mesenchymal stem cells I th should be thought of as a drug, a biological drug, a new generation of biological drugs, and they can be manufactured in the laboratory. You all hear a lot about clinics throughout the world and even in the United States that are giving you uh, stem cell therapy. I urge you, if you speak or interact with any of these clinics, ask them to tell you exactly what, what it is they are claiming as a stem cell. Because a stem cell is defined by two things. One, it can grow and divide, and two, it can turn into another tissue. And so we use that property of growth and division to manufacture the cells from normal human healthy donors, as shown here. We take their bone marrow, we culture it in a special system, and then we package it and we, we quality control it. We make sure it is what we think it is. And this is very important for the FDA. The FDA demands that if you're going to give a patient a stem cell drug under an IND, that you be able to uh, measure exactly what it is. And we do that, as shown in that, in that, in that panel on the uh, bottom left. We measure the cell surface receptors, and then we're able to give that back to a patient as a drug. Now, um, the first thing is, the first thing I've told you is that mesenchymal stem cells reduce inflammation, and we've published that in a number of studies. This is a study measuring a marker of inflammation called tumor necrosis factor. 
Uh, this study was done by Samuel Gulpanian, another postdoctoral fellow in the laboratory. And these are people, these are older individuals who have very moderately elevated levels of tumor necrosis factor. And you can see in a dose response fashion how we can suppress that TNF alpha by 80% and keep it suppressed. And this is very important. This is the property that we believe is important for using mesenchymal stem cell infusions for Alzheimer's disease and depression. Um, now, also, there is some role for stem cells to be introduced into the body to actually, to actually participate in growing new tissue. And this works a lot better in animals than it does in humans, as is typically the case. This is a very famous study where, uh, done in mice, where an investigator labeled the, the stem cells in green, injected it into the mouse brain, and you can see in the hippocampus the growth of new neurons, those beauti that beautiful green structure that cell originated from the stem cell. So there is some role for stem cells replacing tissue in addition to causing regeneration of tissue. So we have ongoing clinical trials right now, and these are done under INDs, as Sharon mentioned. So these are done in the United States with um, authorization of the Food and Drug Administration. And I want to tell you about two trials in particular, and if anybody's interested in these trials, wants to refer somebody to these trials, please don't hesitate to contact me. The one we're very excited about is the first in the United States, a trial which is a phase one trial sponsored by Longevron and with support from the Alzheimer's Association to treat patients with early stage Alzheimer's disease with mesenchymal stem cells. And another is being conducted at the University of Miami with Charlie Nemiroff, supported by the National Institute for Drug Abuse, is to look at patients with treatment-resistant depression. And we think we can help those patients as well by offsetting their neuroinflammation. We even think that mesenchymal stem cells can be useful in treating aging and aging-related conditions like frailty, which is a very, very big problem worldwide as the population ages. And again, we are taking advantage of anti-inflammatory effects, the fact that these cells can home to sites of inflammation, and then again, the pro-regenerative effects, the fact that the cells can stimulate uh, endogenous tissues to repair. We all know that aging is associated with sarcopenia, where we lose muscle mass, and our hypothesis is that stem cells, the stem cells I've described to you, can offset that. So in aging populations, we are studying the fact that um, the stem cell infusions might be able to improve sarcopenia, boost cognitive function, improve cardiovascular function, and even boost the immune system to, uh, to offset uh, aging-related uh, deterioration and functional capacity. I told you I'm a cardiologist. I must end by at least giving you uh, one word about the heart. The uh, pictures on the left show what the heart looks like, the damaged area of the heart uh, after a heart attack. This scar tissue, if I can get the pointer to work. Right there, that's a, the area of damage to the heart. And that's how, we, how much repair we can get with injections of stem cells. And again, what was so exciting to us, and this was really one of the first clues that allowed us to believe that mesenchymal stem cells stimulate that endogenous repair. This picture over here shows cells, cardiac myocytes, in cell division, and th there's an actual cell undergoing what's called mitosis, dividing into two, and this was upregulated, increased by about 20-fold in animals who had received injections of mesenchymal stem cells into the damaged area. 
So the field of using mesenchymal stem cells for uh, heart disease is very far along, and there's a phase three trial being conducted now, which means that approval for this um, treatment for patients with heart failure is imminent. Uh, Congress actually got involved in the stem cell field in uh, 2016, and part of a new law called the 21st Century Cures Act gave the FDA new powers to stimulate the, um, to, uh, to uh, accelerate the approval of stem cell therapies. So, what have I told you today? Uh, stem cells represent a brand new approach to treating degenerative diseases of the brain and the body, and this is very, very exciting to, to doctors and scientists now. Um, uh, what I didn't go into in great detail is that stem cells can be given from one donor to another person without requiring any uh, immunosuppression. They reduce inflammation and they promote tissue regeneration in organs as diverse as the brain and the heart and many other organs. And this has provided us an opportunity to have a new treatment strategy, which we now have in clinical testing in about 15 or 16 different disease states. Um, neuroinflammation, neurodegeneration, aging, and other disorders are key areas in which uh, there's very active research in the United States right now. I'm very fortunate to uh, direct a very, very talented team of uh, scientists and trainees at the University of Miami. This is the picture of the current uh, uh, team, the, the team roster. And we've been very, very fortunate to have a magnificent funding from the NIH going back to 2005 with a number of these very important um, uh, mechanisms. And finally, I should also acknowledge the Alzheimer's Association that's funding the phase one trial. Several foundations have also supported our work, the Sofra Family, the Starr Foundation, and the Marcus Foundation. Thank you very much. Good morning. I'm Doran Pinnell. I'm on the Aspen Brain Institute board, and I'm also a member of the Duke Health Board of Visitors. All the speakers have been so great this morning, and this will be the last one before Gina gets up and has us sing and dance again. Not quite. Not quite. Okay. Jamie Wheel is executive director of the Flow Genome Project. He is co-author of the bestseller, Stealing Fire. He's an expert on peak performance and the application of flow states. Flow Genome Project is an international transdisciplinary organization dedicated to reverse engineering the genome of flow or the peak performance state by 2020. It's 2018 already. So let's see what Jamie has to tell us. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. And uh, first of all, hats off for your endurance. I personally have no more than like two or three talks in me at a time before my butt and my brain go a little stir crazy. So you guys are awesome. Uh, I have a quick request. So I, I woke up this morning at sunrise in the mountains north of Boulder and 
hot-footed it down here to be with you guys. Got to zoom over Independence Pass, uh, which is a place I used to guide uh, mountaineering and backcountry trips, so it was wonderful to be back in these mountains again. Uh, and after lunch, I turn around and zoom back to Boulder for, for a uh, commitment tonight. So, so with that, that's, that, those are my cards on the table, so I'd like to ask you guys to ante up too. So can we do two things? First of all, can we all just stand up? Shake it out. And then let's reach into our pockets. Because, because there was such excessive calorie burn to be here in co-located 3D reality in real time with each other, please take out your phones. Yes, 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 go ahead. Come on, no sandbagging. I was watching the last couple of talks. Take out your phones, please go ahead and just power them down for 20 minutes. You can, you can take a look at lunch. I promise the world will not have got become even screwier in 20 minutes. Power them down, put them in your pockets, and let's be here together. All right, thank you so much. So what I'd love to do is ideally, let, let's kind of do a refresher, let's pop it up a level onto the balcony of all the topics we've been talking about during this event and, and many of the ones still to come. And the idea is, what is possible when we unlock the findings of neuroscience and neuropsychology and we apply them to our personal lives and to our broader social, cultural, and political goals and challenges. So in, you know, in a nutshell, this is the frame that I would set up, is that paradoxically, things in the world, material abundance, access to tools and technology, all of these things are at all-time highs. We live in an era of unparalleled abundance, and weirdly, paradoxically, we're unhappier than ever, we're suffering in larger, greater numbers than ever. What on earth is going on? And what I would like to advance and kind of float as a hypothesis for us to consider today is that part of the reason, not all, but part of the reason, is that we have been taking a purely and exclusively psychological approach to well-being, to happiness, to contentment, to engagement, to anxiety, to depression, to existential despair, to all of the human condition, and we've been taking it solely sort of behind the eyes and in our ego-based stories. When in reality, there are a lot more parts to our bodies and brains, and the way that our bodies and brains directly inform our hearts and minds. And if we can understand those connections better, we can have greater impact in three areas. Healing, innovation, and connection. And those actually all cue off the neuroscience that we're gonna talk about today. So are we good? We locked and loaded to jump into the story? Yeah. All right. So how, raise your hand if you read, heard of, came across, saw somebody else talking about this book within the last couple of years. Yeah, Hillbilly Elegy. It was written by J.D. Vance. He was, he's a very interesting fellow. He grew up in the backwoods Appalachia of rural Ohio, the, the classic kind of um, overlooked town, opioid addictions, lots of dysfunctions. He, his ticket out was to join the Marine Corps. From the Marine Corps, he parlayed that into entry into Yale Law. And then he wrote this book. And he wrote that the timing of it was, was um, propitious. It was, it was right around the last 24 months. So just as the world lurched off its axis in 2016, and a whole bunch of people said, what on earth is going on? 
Vance came out with this book, and he tried to explain what is, what is happening and what is it like in the flyover states, in the overlooked and forgotten places in America. And this came out of Princeton a couple of years ago, which was basically saying that if you are a white male with less than a college degree over the age of 40, your incidences of mortality are skyrocketing. And interestingly, an even higher uptick for women in the same demographic, but still lower overall numbers. So that's shocking. For the first time in generations, children are having lower prospects. This is, not, this, is, this is the sort of truncation or perversion of the American dream that parents strive and struggle, they pass the football to their kids, the, football, the kids take it another few yards downfield and life keeps getting better. And we're actually witnessing a turning point. This is happening broadly around the world as well. The World Health Organization has done a study just in the last two years and has found that around the world, suicide and depression rates are skyrocketing. And they are happening, if you see those dark red areas on this map, they are happening in areas of low economic development, poor social and political stability, basically in the places where, you take a look at this, 75% of suicides are taking place in low and middle income countries. And just take a look at that bottom right hand corner, that annually more of us around the world choose to take our own lives at this point than war and all natural disasters combined. Just think about that for a moment. We are born into the 21st century with peace and prosperity. There's no saber-toothed tigers. There's no Attila the Huns. There's no black plagues, or at least not right now, fingers crossed. And we, are, we have become our own worst enemies. More humans choose to step off the mortal coil every year than war, famine, flood, earthquake, forest fires combined. That's shocking. So this is the weird world we live in. We have supercomputers in our pockets. We have air conditioning. We have Chilean grapes in February at Whole Foods. <laughs> and giant, amazing 4D. Have you, by the way, sidebar, are you guys a little bummed by high-resolution widescreen TV? Because they turn all your favorite movies into what looks like 80s VHS soap operas. Like, they're completely, <laughs> like, the whole, the, the contrast is gone. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. So, so far, we could say, okay, there's a big global mental health epidemic. It's directly affecting the downtrodden, the overlooked, the people having the hardest time keeping up with the bus of this wild-ass, globally-connected society. But this sign right here, right, you can read it. It's a railroad crossing sign. But it's, t it's, it's actually affixed to a telephone pole in a town many of you know, Palo Alto. And in the last 10 years, there has been an epidemic in Palo Alto High School and other related high schools in the region of some of their best and brightest kids. So this is not Appalachia. This is not red state flyovers. These are the, these are the parents of PhDs. These are the, the, the dual income tech industry titans. And they've had to hire private security guards to guard the railroad tracks 24-7 so no more of Palo Alto's finest children don't choose to walk in front 
of those trains. So that really drives it home. This is not just social justice, right, although vital and necessary. This is not just global distribution of wealth and access. This is right here at, in the cradle of innovation with our best and brightest. So we've been, we might have heard a lot about diseases of despair in this last few years. The idea that folks are just literally overwhelmed and suffering in greater numbers than ever. But what if, what if we got it wrong? What if these aren't diseases at all? What if they're symptoms? What if all of these things we're seeing are symptoms of something even bigger and more pernicious? And what I would propose to you, and back to that big idea in the beginning where we kind of teed this up, is that we are potentially overloading our nervous systems. So if you look at this good old-fashioned 40s era radio, right? Anthropologists have a term for societies. They classify societies as monophasic or polyphasic societies. A mono, and that just means one channel or many channels to consciousness. What are accepted ways for people to have awareness, interact with information? So many indigenous cultures, for instance, would be polyphasic. They would have dreams, visions, trances, premonitions, meditation, shamanic states, a whole bunch of things, and they were integrated and valid. So if you came downstairs and said, you know, in, in Chiapas, and you said, you said, Abuela, Abuela, I just had a dream of grandfather. You know, Abuela would not say, oh, that's just a Freudian projection of your unconscious, shut up and eat your, eat your Wheaties and get to the school bus. She would say, oh, what did grandfather have to say? Right, Tibetan lamas who go into trance become the oracles. They bring through information that is considered valid and essential. Well, we, surprise, surprise, ended up with a monophasic culture. And that happened way back when, French Enlightenment, the idea of you know, good old-fashioned, straight-up empirical rationalism, and what I can touch, taste, see, feel, measure, is real. And we ended up with a singular mode of consciousness, which is predominantly waking state, rational, binary consciousness. And it has very specific, specific neuro, neurological correlates. You can track it, you can measure it. It gave us all sorts of awesome things. It gave us the scientific revolution. It gave us civil society, it gave us civil rights. It helped us articulate free markets. It did, it did a wonder of things. But what it robbed us of is range and versatility in our neuropsychology. And what happened is that dial, which used to roll up and down the knob so freely for millions of years of human evolution and culture, got rusted shut. And so now we're in a situation where we are running good old AOL modem at the time where the world has just gone to you know, quantum fiber optic. A couple of years ago, Eric Schmidt made the point. It's kind of mind-blowing. He said, up until 2007, for all of human history, all of the bits of information that were ever shared are now getting duplicated every two years. So all of human history, including cavemen, to 2007, now every 24 months. If you read the New York Times Sunday edition tomorrow morning, in that one leisurely hour and a half or so, with a cup, with a cup of coffee, you will have consumed more information than a medieval monk did in their lifetimes. So <laughs> what we are looking at is literally a situation where we are all experiencing chronic micro-PTSD. We are, we are getting stimulated and triggered, and we do not have the resources 
to integrate this in meaningful, healthy, sustainable ways. So last year, uh, Stephen Cutler and I came out with this book, Stealing Fire, and it was an assessment of exactly this issue from the other side of the fence, because we thought, okay, that's the public health case, right? That's where we can know, hey, there's, it's global, it's pernicious, it's pervasive, um, and obviously there's a lot of, there's a strong need to go out and do something about this. We came at it from the exact opposite side. We're like, well, really, those are public health stats. Um, NGOs, they tend to have a specific filter. If this is really real, really the kind of crisis we think it might be, it should show up in the marketplace as well. There should actually be an economic signature to this problem. So we actually began a six-month research project with a team of economists to try and track the, what we call... Is it possible if I can get it? Can I get a backup up here? That would be great, thanks. Um, so we tracked the altered states economy, which was basically all the time and money that we collectively spend just trying to change that rusted knob on the dial, just trying to go from monophasic, I'm stuck in my head and I cannot get out and it's killing me, into polyphasic. And we, we considered the categories that would make sense. Any pursuit or behavior that literally provides a shift in consciousness from waking state 21st century normal, tired, wired, stressed, probably a little neurotic, into something where I step outside myself and I experience some degree of relief. We looked at the usual suspects, drugs and pharmaceuticals, both licit and licit. We looked at media, social media, streaming pornography, IMAX theaters, anything that would the primary reason for doing it is to lose myself, even if for a moment. We looked at personal growth, ranging from formalized therapy to the entire multi-billion dollar self-help industry. And we looked at recreation, where you're not playing for points, you're not playing for trophies, you're playing for the delight and loss. Well, we tallied it all up, and we ended up with a number that was mind-boggling. In fact, it was so ridiculous, I made our economists recalculate it four different times before we went to press. Because it's four trillion bucks. That's a quarter of the US GDP. Four trillion dollars. A 15-year dual front war in Afghanistan and Iraq, to put this in perspective, the entire tab for that sucker is five trillion. We're spending four trillion every year just to get out of our heads. Now, not all of it's productive. A lot of it's distractive, addictive, destructive. But the fact that we spend that much consistently can underscore how essential a need this is. Because what we found in our studies, and we were trying to kind of create a model that's useful, like what are those non-ordinary states? What do people value when they try and change that channel? Where are they trying to get to? And what we found was there's four consistent features. Selflessness, timelessness, effortlessness, and richness. And they show up across meditation, across flow states, across psychedelic states, across sexual states, across movement and dance, across action sports, across a whole host of doorways in, the places people can continually get to represent these four things. Selflessness just means that little, that inner critic in my head has finally gone quiet. And whether I'm doing CrossFit or I'm an endurance runner or whatever, like just the ability to not have that nag. The timelessness means I'm no longer you know, running away from painful past or running towards you know, fearful futures. I'm not on my phone in my planner. I'm just here, as Eckhart Tolle famously said, right? And Ram Dass before him. 
but to be in this present moment. Priceless. The effortlessness is endless motivation, joy and delight for doing the thing we're here to do. And the richness is actually access to information, pattern recognition and decision making I don't normally have. So that's the why behind the $4 trillion. Now, as we were, as we were doing this research, we tracked all the data. What's happening in neuroscience? What's happening in psychology? What's happening in occupational therapy, rehabilitative stuff? And we found ourselves accidentally creating a Rosetta Stone. And if you guys remember the original Rosetta Stone, it was like the time of Napoleon. They went to Egypt. They were trying to figure out what all the hieroglyphics were, and they found this one stone, and it was written in Greek, Demotic Greek, and Egyptian hieroglyphs. And because they had all three, they could figure out exactly what the sentences meant, and they unlocked you know, thousands of years of Egyptian communication. Well, in some small way, we found a bit of a Rosetta Stone for optimal human flourishing and well-being. Now, for the technicians in the audience, I want to caution you guys, this is a two-dimensional approximation of multivariable complex human stuff. So, these, are the, these relationships are not one-to-one, -one, they're not locked, but this is just a general gestalt to take a look at, which is, in a nutshell, 21st century wired, what we talked about, tired, wired, stressed, that's the left-hand side with the red circle. That's what you're looking at. You're looking at a lot of cortisol, a lot of norepinephrine, a lot of high beta wave activity, a lot of prefrontal cortical activity. Quite often, for many of us, especially desk-bound and sitting and all these things, we have crummy posture. Our shoulders roll forward. Our lungs collapse. The bottom third of our lungs are usually pooled CO2. We have poor air exchange and poor oxygen saturation. Our cardiac rhythm right, is, typically, is typically erratic with very poor cardiac coherence. There's this predictable stack, and this is where most of us live most of the time. But if you look on the right-hand side with the yellow circle, that's where things tend to get consistently interesting. And again, remember the dial, it's not that there's, we're not trying to change one fixed location on the dial for a different fixed location on the dial. We're looking for range. And by gaining access to different neuroelectrical states, alpha and theta, many of you are aware of those from meditative practices. Again, flow states correlate in these zones. Deactivating our prefrontal cortex tends to give us relief and tends to give us access to other areas of our brain connecting, communicating, and making sense for us. All of these things build out to and lead up to basically paint by numbers consciousness design, which is kind of radical when you think about it and really exciting as far as the possibilities and the premises it gives us access to. So when you throw that in gear, this is a version of what this looks like, and this is based on Herbert Benson's work at Harvard, and then built on with some of our research with Red Bull and a lot of their elite athletes. But when you take a look at this, if you, you, you take it, in fact, I don't think this pointer, I don't think I have a pointery thing, but if you look at the section that says struggle, that's where this cycle starts. Meaning like life, any experience starts with overload, starts with more challenge than we can handle. That's where we are in 21st century normal. High beta activity, stress response, potential vigilance, and we're trying to deal with something we haven't solved for. Now, either we get super stressed there and we collapse, or if we're really fortunate, we end up in a release phase. And that's where nitric oxide, neurotransmitter, flushes through our system, it flushes out and down regulates our stress response, and it helps communicate and bring in a lot of relaxation and well-being neurochemicals. 
our brain waves tend to slow down a notch. We start becoming less, sort of less um, forcing the feel and more sort of feeling the force. We're allowing ourselves to kind of go with something. That could be frustration, it could be fatigue, it could be a whole host of things, but that's what, that's what it does. Then we actually end up in a flow state or a non-ordinary state. And that's a situation where our brain waves go from alpha, potentially even all the way down into theta. Most of us only experience theta when we're in sort of drifting off to sleep. It's called a hypnagogic state, right? Where you kind of jerk awake and you suddenly find yourself having a weird dream even though you thought you were still awake. But that's a place of amplified pattern recognition, super enhanced connections, and very interesting access to novel ideas. And that's where you also get feel-good hormones, dopamine, endorphins, anandamide. And you end up in a very resourced state. And then finally, you end up in a recovery stage. And that recovery stage is hinged on what we were just talking about this morning, deep delta wave sleep. And then we can begin this all again. Now think about it, what we've learned is, is that people who are in trauma can go through this cycle and they can come back to zero, they can come back to homeostasis in their nervous systems. And that if you give humans, I mean, I, I, I am a terrible offender at this. I, have my, I leave my laptop open for a week at a time and I end up with 30 tabs across my browser and then at some point I'm trying to like get on a Skype or a Zoom and my video won't work and I'm like, what's going on? It's like, oh, I've had way too many tabs open for too long on my computer, what do we do? Right, you hit the power button. Right? You shut it down and you boot it back up. And most of the time that helps. And that's what we're finding is an incredible antidote to this information overwhelm, to the idea that we're trying to, we're trying to perceive a world that's in, that's in broadband, just running little modems. And the interesting thing, the thing that I think potentially connects us all here today, why, why we're in this room, why this event exists, is that we are in the last decade, and you could say the last five years, but certainly recently and ex increasingly, we are experiencing ways to unlock this knowledge because of the intersection of these four forces. And these four forces, psychology, technology, pharmacology, and neurobiology, advancements in each of these fields are now overlapping. We're getting insights into how to address the human condition by how these things cross-pollinate. So for an example, and what for an example is uh, Imperial College, who we're actually doing a partnership with, doing research. We're actually comparing the neurophysiology of a flow state to their MDMA and trauma work. Because they were able to put substances like MDMA and psilocybin into a participant and then put them in an fMRI machine, they weren't just learning more about the substance, they were learning more about the nature of mind because they could end up with highly accurate readouts and data and imaging. That's a fascinating thing. That's where we're having an understanding of human psychology because we have better access to neurobiology and pharmacology. Alternately, there's technoceuticals like electrical impulses to tune people's vagal nerves, which can decrease stress, inflammation, a whole host of things. And that's actually a little magnetic, almost like a little magnetic pacemaker meets garage door opener that people are putting here. And suddenly technology is intersecting with neurobiology and completely changing our psychology. So, so with that, the doors are open. We have the Rosetta Stone. And it, what it's allowing us to do is realize that we don't have to face this human condition without tools. 
and that the next breakthrough technique, technology, pill, practice actually lives within an even bigger map, that Rosetta Stone, the idea that we can heal ourselves and each other, that we can access innovation and we can enhance collaboration by tuning the knobs and levers of our bodies and brains is potentially what I hope is our, is our best shot at the future. And, and I'll, leave you with, I'll leave you with this one, which is uh, both Wes Jackson, uh, who's, who's fantastic, and, and, and his quote, I think, speaks for itself here. Uh, but there's, a, there's another one from the Talmud, which says, we are not expected to finish this work, nor are we excused from it. Thank you very much. Wow, that's pretty exciting. Uh, I have just one more little bit, one tiny three-minute video that's going to tell you about our third, Aspen Brain Institute's third program. It's called the Global STEM Alliance. It really, I think we're going to try to help train some global students to be the people that can think like Jamie Wheel thinks, some of the leaders and inventors of the future. So may I please show you this and just tell you two minutes about it. And then we're gonna have some shaking and dancing and then lunch. So guys, can you play that Global STEM Alliance video? The STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. These disciplines have historically stood at the forefront of scientific and technical innovation. But access to these subjects and the resources they demand are still the reserve of those who can afford it. As the philanthropist Dr. Kelly Gerstenhaber has said, the most underserved student is the STEM-talented, financially disadvantaged child, and the cost of this negligence is immeasurable. Together, we can change this. The Aspen Brain Institute is proud to announce its support of the New York Academy of Sciences Global STEM Alliance, created to inspire and prepare the next generation of STEM innovators. I really had no idea like what like being a scientist would be like. Like I knew about the scientific method before, but now I like understand how it would be applied. The Global STEM Alliance brings together 8,000 students from over 50 countries. With the goal of supporting economically disadvantaged students, the initiative provides leadership and community-oriented training from a global network of talented peers. Once accepted, participants become young members of the New York Academy of Sciences. It's not every day that I can meet someone from England or from China, so I was thinking, why not be social and put myself out there? These young people are the innovators and future leaders in brain science and STEM studies. But the program was forced to deny many of the brilliant applicants a chance. It doesn't matter what degree you get. What matters is that skill that you're learning and how you're going to apply it to the question I like to ask, which is, what problem do you want to solve? Let's inspire, support, and empower our future innovators.
By donating to the Aspen Brain Institute, you can help expand a student's scientific horizons by leaps and bounds. The Aspen Brain Institute will match any donation over $1,000. The more you donate, the more STEM-talented kids you sponsor, and the more your impact multiplies. To help us reach our goal of supporting 2,000 brilliant STEM students, simply head over to aspenbraininstitute.org. Thank you, and we hope you can donate today. But um, this, this Global STEM Alliance, which is a global peer online network for low-income uh, STEM-talented kids all over the world, there are 8,000 kids already on this Global STEM Alliance. We partnered with the New York Academy of Sciences, who has the infrastructure and really runs this group. But we're allowed to identify 2,000 kids in this year and in the future that we can put, give the opportunity to join the Global STEM Alliance where they get extra STEM training. They belong to, they will become our 21st century global leaders. Um, the Aspen Brain Institute itself gives a social impact action prize. I just want to tell you two words about that because you'll hear the type of kids that belong to this and, and take advantage of this program. Last year, four girls won our social impact prize. I don't know how they really do it, but they meet online on a global platform. Two girls from India, one girl from New York, one girl from California. They had never met each other, they meet online they're STEM, very STEM talented. They decided they wanted to work on a challenge on how to find Ebola symptoms that recur in Ebola survivors, but the Ebola survivors don't know it. So they developed a wrist tracker and an eye tracker to uh, alert Ebola survivors about these symptoms. That was last year. This year, we, we had two prizes. One group of kids from all over the world joined, four kids, and they, um, they figured out a way to reconfigure the, the molecules in plastic so that it would be less, would be more biodegradable. And if that ever gets to market, that will be revolutionary. So there are things like that that these kids can do, and I just wish that you could join us and help us identify. There are two things you could do to help. One is to help us identify kids that need this, low-income STEM talented kids that we can give the opportunity to join this Global STEM Alliance. Um, if you know of schools that have these kids, you know personally some kids, you have contacts in other countries, please let us know th through the Aspen Institute or through me personally. I am passionate about supporting this program. I want these 2,000 kids to be my personal legacy. This is where I want to make a difference. Our board has decided to support this. And if any of you want to support this, you can be a hero and change someone's life and I'm just simply asking you to pay some of the opportunities that you've had to pay it forward. Thank you.
Oh, we have an offer from someone, uh, Vlad, who's helping us, Vlad Inash, and the Aspen Promise uh, Foundation. They'll match the first 10 donations over $5,000. And they will also give a laptop for the Global STEM Alliance student with your donor's name on it. So we'll sort of be coming around and asking if any of you want to do any of this identification thing, or donation thing. Uh, we're gonna have Gina come up and do some fun stuff. I just have to tell you, after three minutes of Gina with some fun, we are gonna have lunch, and there'll be a networking lunch, so there'll be the names at tables of all our outstanding speakers. You can sit at any table you want, but it will be first come, first serve. So let's, let's call up Gina Murdoch, the founder of Aspen Yoga Society, Lead With Love, and many of her outstanding programs. Thank you. Good afternoon. I wanted to see, is there any of the STEM kids here today? I would love for you guys to come up here. I mean, if you're brave enough, come on up. I want to share with you all something very important. And just like Jamie said, I know it's lunchtime, but I would just ask for your attention. I want you to just sit with me for just a moment. You should stay. My team and I, Nicole and Abby, who are here, we run an organization called Lead with Love. Our organization is heart-centered social impact, and our mission is to shift culture from fear to love. We do that through events, trainings, things like retreats. We were in Bali earlier this year with Michael Franti. We have an event in October that's called a Leadership Summit, and I would love for you all to tune into that. But what I'm most passionate about, just like Glenda with the STEM kids, is our service component. It's called Project Wellbeing, and Nicole runs this program, if you'll come back up here. I wanted to show you a few pictures of people here in our community in Aspen. We have road and bridge workers. We have people in the clerks and recorders, parks and recreation. We go into the workplace and serve the essential service workers of our community. We have a suicide rate in the Aspen area in Picking County that is three times the national average. So I want you to think about that just for a second. We are a very powerful community. We have a lot of money in this community. It doesn't matter. What happens here is people are suffering around the world. And what you heard from Jamie is every 40 seconds, someone in this earth chooses to take their life. So I just want us to take a deep breath and feel into that reality. Put your hand on your heart and know how precious this life is, how dear it is to all of us, and know that there are so many people suffering out there. So what we do with Lead With Love is we try to inspire people, empower people to lead from their hearts. We are becoming so disconnected. We know each other, but we don't see each other anymore. And I think that that's a problem, and that's why we started this organization. So I want to thank Glenda, the Brain Institute, this STEM situation. I personally am supporting that as a board member, and I'm so honored to do so. Thank, thank you, you for that. And so we're going to do something really fun, because life is about joy and fun. It's also about a lot of suffering. We know that. It's the juxtaposition, the dark and the light. And I do want to recognize my teacher, Rod Stryker, who's here, who is an amazing yoga teacher. And I think that he will be, in some ways, mortified that I am teaching laughing and shaking and dancing meditation. But I don't think so. I'd like to call you up on stage, too, Rod Stryker. 
So life is about joy, it's about fun, it's about knowing our hearts and serving from our hearts. So I would like to ask you all to stand up. And we're going to do something called laughter yoga, laughter meditation. You guys are going to help us. And so we're going to start by clapping our hands like this. And then we're going to say ha, ha, ho, ho. 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 Ha, 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 ho, ho, ho. Now, that's just getting you warmed up. And by the way, this reduces stress and inflammation, everybody. We're going to take a partner. Just come here, Glenda. We're going to do what we call the lion's breath into each other's faces. It looks like this. You got to find someone and look right in their face. Big inhale breath. Come on, Mark Hyman. I'd like to invite Mark Hyman. Ivan, up to the stage, please. All the speakers, come all on up speakers. here. Mark. We're going to bring all the speakers up here. And now I want you to take a deep breath in. You're going to clap your hand, and you're going to just start laughing hysterically. You've got to fake it till you make it. Inhale. Ha, 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 now you're going to take your body, you're going to start shaking it. Shake it just a little bit. Shake your legs, shake your arms. There you go, Tara Sheehan. Bring yourself up on stage, Seth, right now. And we're going to cue some music, you guys, and we're just going to have a really, really good time, okay? So dance with us. If you're a speaker, come up on stage. It'd be great if you played the music. That would be awesome. And we're going to shake it, and we're just going to have a really good time and great laugh. If you can boost up the uh, audio here. This is us. We're having fun. Clap our hands. Let's clap. Woo! Can you turn it up? Can you crank it? Yes. Alright, come on, come on, come on, come on.
fire.